Welcome to the IB Policy Podcast, where we provide expert commentary and analysis on the legal and regulatory developments impacting the digital advertising industry. My name is Alex Propes, and I'm the Vice President of Public Policy for the IB, based in Washington, D.C. In February, IB released a study that examined the socioeconomic impact of tracking, including an estimate of the revenue and employment losses to the open web that could result from a deprecation of third-party cookies and similar identifiers. In today's conversation, I get to sit down with Professor John Dayton, who is the Harold M. Brearley Professor of Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard Business School and the author of this research study. Among other topics, we'll explore some of the unexpected findings from his research and their public policy implications. I hope you enjoy. John, thank you for joining us. Hi, Alex. Good to see you again. So in February of this year, you published a report on the social and economic impact of tracking. This was commissioned by IAB, and we released the study at our IAB annual leadership meeting in Palm Desert. Coincidentally, the report was published just days before Chrome came out with an announcement uh, that I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with uh, about its timeline to deprecate third-party cookies. So I think that the timing was certainly very relevant uh, and a relevant topic for what's taking place in the industry today. So I'm looking forward to delving into that report uh, during this conversation. But before we do so, we are recording this podcast in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And so I did just want to first start off by asking you, you know, personally, how you and your family are doing. We're doing very well, fortunately. Yes, and yourselves? Yes. No, I think we're, we're fortunate to be here in D.C. Um, and I know our colleagues in New York are, are going through a, a different level, a different type of experience. And so, so overall, very grateful. But um, it's a challenging time. And I also know through Twitter, uh, related to this topic, that you've been following a lot of the impacts closely on the current health crisis and, and kind of how that's been intertwining with the media and marketing industry. Well, it is rather fascinating that, uh, that what marketing has built in the world of, um, of data and tracking for purposes of advertising is suddenly beginning to look kind of relevant to contact track tracing uh, and other kinds of, of, of medical applications. Absolutely. Yeah, you've started to see companies from, you know, all different sorts of companies, but certainly within digital advertising, seeing how they can use their data resources to help in this, uh, in this response. And so I think that's been encouraging, but also <laughs> raises uh, a number of questions, which Congress and others are, are actively looking into. Um, yeah, nobody says data is the new oil anymore since oil just went, <laughs> went down the tubes, but they are saying data is the new fire. It can, yeah. be, it can be kind of harmful, but it can be terrifically useful. <laughs> We're finding a new use for data. In the Absolutely. Yep, yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a, a great insight, a good analogy. I'm certain we could record a standalone podcast on, on everything taking place there, but I do want to jump into your research. And so to set level set with our audience, could you maybe describe what you mean by tracking in the context of this report? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question that we don't actually get into in much detail in the report itself. But tracking is, tracking is, is what you need when you move from broadcast marketing to, to uh, addressable or interactive marketing. And so we've been tracking, uh, tracking has been an important part of marketing uh, for really the last 30 years. It's become important in the direct marketing world. It, it's taken on a new dimension when tracking moved from the physical world to, to the online world, but it simply means the ability of a marketer to view a consumer at the individual level uh, with a sense of continuity in their understanding of that consumer, whether it's the, the person or some um, anonymized identity. There's the ability in a tracking world 
to see that customer over time. And so as you set out figuring out the best way to go about this research, you were looking at both third-party cookies, I'd imagine, and also mobile ad IDs, or was it technology-specific? No, we, we, we covered uh, all those devices and, and methods that are used to follow um, an identity over time. And so I'd love if you could give an overview of the methodology and of how you set up the, the, the research and also some of the key findings. Sure, sure. So the, um, the, 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 the top line result that we found, the assignment, let me perhaps start there. The assignment was what would the impact be on the US economy, and this is US only, uh, if cookies were to go away and, uh, and be replaced by something along the lines of, uh, the, of the, the Google Chrome announcement combined with the, the Apple mobile um, ad ID device. So what would happen if, if, if third-party cookies disappeared? And the bottom line is that the impact would be of the order of about $24 billion to $29 billion of loss of revenue to the open web, to all those players, publishers, uh, on, on the on the open web side of the economy, plus another eight to ten billion dollars of effectively decimation of the third party um, uh, support structure, the programmatic people, the um, some of the market research uh, purveyors, and so on. But let's be clear: this wasn't, would not be a loss of revenue to the economy as a whole. It would be a shift in that revenue from the open web, from the third party players, to the, 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 the ad tech giants, to particularly obviously Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Um, how did we get there? Well, in 2016, we did a study for the IAB that was more comprehensive than this one. It looked essentially at the role of, well, at the contribution that advertising makes to the support of the entire internet. So it required us to enumerate the details of the internet. We, we came up with a number somewhat in excess of a trillion dollars uh, as being the value of revenue created in a year in the US for, um, for the internet. And to do that, we, we worked at a very micro level. We picked all of those firms that we believed contributed something to the, um, to the internet of a substantial size. And so we had something like 600 firms plus some roll-up categories. So when we came to do this study, when the question here was, well, how much of that, of that trillion dollars is, um, is sensitive to the ability to trace people over time using cookies, all we did was went to the companies in that previous analysis, uh, updated their, uh, their situation. In other words, we, you know, took into account the fact that, uh, that four years had passed, looked at new entrants, and then, and then ran the calculation. And here's the, here's the core of the calculation. A number of academics have studied, and practitioners, have studied what happens if you take advertising insertion opportunities and strip them of this tracking information. The answer is very consistent. It's that the value of the insertion opportunity drops by about half. Sometimes 60%, sometimes 50 but generally in that ballpark. So if I can sell information about a consumer that includes um, identifiable, uh, characterizing the individual in, in some depth, some psychographics and so on, I can get 
twice the price for that for that insertion. That makes a lot of intuitive sense. And I know in the research, you you gave an overview of some of the studies and how you came across this kind of average impact uh, based on the last loss of tracking. I think there have been one or two studies out there as outliers that I think you also mentioned in the report that show less of an impact. And I, th I think that's also interesting to point out that, you know, depending on where you sit in the industry, there certainly there might be a different impact uh, to your particular business. Um, so if you're looking at individual firms, I can imagine that there's quite a bit of variance, but on on average, there are some clear conclusions on, on the type of impact it has. Yeah, there's one study that shows less than 50%. That, that uh, has special circumstances attached to it. Now, we think the the idea uh, that you know, information has value and the, the information that, that, that has been cultivated and developed and put into circulation through programmatic is, is really valuable. And, and so we're not surprised at a 50% um, reduction when that information is taken away. So this is maybe jumping ahead a few steps, uh, but so the, the conclusion of your research really highlights the point that the big are getting bigger at the expense of the small since those dollars are shifting rather than disappearing. And do you feel like this is a possibility or an inevitability at this stage? It's, an inevitab it's inevitable if there is no mitigating action taken. Uh, it's inevitable that if we move from um, from the, the cookie, which when you think about the cookie, it's really a kind of wonderful um, uh, protocol that nobody owns. It's just a, an agreement we have um, that everyone will conform to this protocol and it's worked for 25 years. Um, if we move from that to what I perhaps tongue in cheek call a branded cookie, uh, I notice nobody's calling it that, but that's what it is. Instead of being an open protocol, it becomes a branded product. Well, the person providing that product, who happens also to be a major advertiser and, uh, and of course, controls one of the 50% share of the, of the browser market, will, um, will inevitably um, make out pretty well from, from, from that, that move. If there's some sort of resistance to that, if, if something is developed that allows the, the, the world to resist that, that um, move to a branded protocol, well then obviously the, the effect won't be so bad. And I think that's what, what the study should be read as, as a, a measure of the stakes of how important it is that, that we address this potential um, consolidation of power in, in, the, um, in, the, in the internet advertising market internet marketing market, really, I should emphasize that because CRM, uh, attribution, a lot of marketing activities depend on cookies at the moment and, and will um, and take attribution, for example, instead of attribution being something that a third party can provide objectively without a, a, without a, a, a dog in the fight, now suddenly um, the method by which uh, attribution is assessed will be controlled by the same person who markets the, um, the advertising space. I think that's a really valuable contribution of this research that it's, it's in so many ways a really intangible and hard to, hard to understand industry to wrap your heads around, you know, what are the stakes? What's the, the overall size that we're talking about? 
Um, and I think this puts it in perspective in a really tangible way relative to other industries where maybe that's a bit more obvious um, what the consequences of different you know, competitive or, or changes in the supply chain look like. It is really a, an abstract idea, uh, uh, identity, right? loss of identity. Absolutely. And, and now we've, we've seen a big move in, in, this, mar- in this world toward the, the three big players, uh, consolidation of the, of the advertising market it's now running at something like what's it about 120 billion, um, and the open web component has has become quite a lot smaller. So, at first blush, you might say, well, it's a continuation of a trend that we've seen for some time, but um, it's it's uh, it's a substantial um, shift in the speed at which that trend is occurring. And this will be a, a 50% shrinkage, essentially of all that is not part of the three tech giants. And is that how you're describing open web? You've used that term a couple of times. Is it essentially everything except the, the, the larger companies in the ecosystem? That's exactly right. It's everything except the three, um, while no, noting that there are um, three or four players on the sidelines who are well-placed to join um, the big three. Uh, in in this sort of monopolistic position in the data market. Uh, those would be companies largely in telecommunications who have many of the pieces in place to, to uh, consolidate. Now, that may sound like, you know, the great American tradition. We used to have millions of hundreds of car manufacturers and eventually we, we boiled it down to three. The problem is that all innovation comes from the smaller part of, of an economy like that. So the open web, small though it is, um, has been where many of the great ideas in, <clears throat> in marketing have come from. And I'd be very sorry to lose that, that spirit. Now, innovation obviously can occur within the larger companies, but the incentive is so much uh, less strong when you're not fighting for a, a piece of, uh, of, of, of something you don't currently already have a pretty good stake in. Yeah, at IB, that's certainly been core to our philosophy and to keep an open competitive ecosystem where anyone in this digital advertising, marketing, media landscape can can continue to compete uh, and really thrive. And so we have launched a program called uh, REARC, which is about re-architecting the web to try to adapt to this changing ecosystem. Um, and so that's certainly uh, in the same uh, vein as, as what you highlighted. Precisely. Yeah. Moving to a topic that we haven't discussed yet, but that's core to this entire debate is data privacy. And many of these decisions um, are being uh, done uh, in the name of data privacy. And, and how can we make sure that consumers understand how data is used online to make sure that's transparent and being done in a way that they uh, agree to. Um, can you talk a bit about whether or not the research on consumer preferences in this space um, or your general sense of this, this subject align with that, that message? Yes, there, there is obviously no, no, no doubt that concern for privacy and a related but different concern for security uh, of data. These are, these are um, issues that have come to the fore in recent years. And I think it's recent years because although we've had 
uh, considerable quantities of personal data available, as I said, for 30, 40 years in the, in the maybe longer, the first, the first catalogs were mailed in 1870 and they were mailed with knowledge of who they were being mailed to. So we've, we've kind of gotten used to our mailboxes containing information uh, that we didn't actually disclose, but we've become a little shocked at, with the rise of the internet to find it happening uh, uh, through our browsers. So we're adjusting as a culture to this uh, sense of, uh, of, of intrusion, that the, the searches I make in Google or the, or the websites I visit somehow become part of my profile or my identity, even though I didn't think it was going to happen. And so, yes, there's a great deal of concern and, um, and that has motivated a, a lot of action. The, I, I don't want to mitigate that concern at all. It has to be addressed. But one of the fascinating findings that recurs in the academic literature is that people will pay a lot more to, um, to uh, that people are reluctant to give up their identity, uh, but, but, they, uh, but they're willing to receive goods in exchange for their, for their identity. So uh, Kath Stunstein has a study in which the, the difference is something like, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pay $5 to, to protect my identity, but if you want to buy my identity, it'll cost you $80, that kind of ratio. And that's been repeated in a number of studies. So it's, it's, I think one of the arguments that says that provided one can guarantee a relative degree of protection from intrusion, from unwelcome intrusion, that, that society will adjust to understanding the value of, um, <clears throat> of a persistent identity over time. It's just don't use that identity against my interests. And so I think there's a lot of work that the IAB can do and is doing on, on how exactly to achieve that balance between, uh, yeah. And you mentioned in the study too, the challenge of, you know, revealed preferences as opposed to survey data and, and stated preferences. So that's an added complication in trying to really get to, you know, the, solving the correct problem for consumers. Exactly. If you ask me what I want, I want privacy. If you put me in a situation in which I have to buy that privacy, I won't pay for it. Mm -hmm. And from what I've heard over the last few months, as this topic has really taken over the industry in many ways, um, there is a lot that see this as an opportunity to help better express that value exchange that you're talking about and, and make that um, as clear as possible and provide this added transparency and comfort to consumers since at the end of the day, you know, trust is so critical to, to an industry's you know, long-term future. I'd be curious if that's the, the sense you've gotten from talking to the in, those in the industry or in response to, to the paper, if, if you see opportunity um, in this time of uncertainty um, or if there's a lot of pessimism about the current direction. So trust is, um, you know, trust, trust is always an important variable when uh, you can't verify, uh, you know, when, when there's some um, uncertainty or abstractness to the problem. Um, you know, most of us will, will buy products if we've got a confidence that we can return them. But when we, when we get involved in an information transaction, um, we're not even sure who we transacted with, then some sense of trust in the overall system and it, with the players becomes uh, terribly important. Yeah, so um, so I, I think that, that, that a number of people are, are recognizing that this is a moment when people can establish trust. As we said at the start, there's a, um, there, there's a recognition that information can be very 
valuable in the in the healthcare system as a solution to some of the some of the problems of contact tracing and so on. So I, I think that there's reason to think that as we see the benefits of information, uh, personal information, that we'll develop uh, as a general as a general matter a more nuanced understanding of um, of what parts of my privacy I need to desperately protect and what parts I can entrust to uh, to, to competent um, technical professionals. And from a policymaking standpoint, you know, IAB has long argued for that that nuance in the conversation and making sure that we're thinking about data not as you know a binary um, uh, type of information, but that has many different you know risk levels associated with it, different many different sensitivities associated with it. So I would be curious if you have thoughts about what your findings from this research, you know, could could how that could inform policymakers. If you think there are any implications or ways we should be thinking about the problem differently from a policymaking standpoint. Well, policy was not our primary focus in the study. I, I think we we make it clear, however, that um, that that the shift that we're talking about here, the move from um, from an open protocol for tracking consumers to a privately branded protocol will, um, will place a lot of power uh, and therefore a lot of policy making capacity in the hands of, of the ad tech uh, industry. Um, I, I don't know, it's not my, it's not my, my, uh, my, my, my turf to ask how, uh, how government feels about that, but, I, but if, um, we, we have issues of regulation and we have, have issues of antitrust, but these must be considerations. How much, how much power to make policy do we delegate to, uh, to these companies, which are not just large in relative to the United States, but are globally gigantic? And I, I'll leave that to, to people like yourselves. Yep, absolutely. I think the, the more you know, economic data we have on, on what the different outcomes could be. Uh, I think that's that's a primary function that we can serve in, in informing regulators on what the correct policy uh, should be at the end of the day based on what consumers would like. Yeah. Um, so I know that you're prolific across many different topics in digital marketing. Are there other issues beyond this research that have that have been interesting you recently or, or have captured your attention? Um, well, this is a, the, yeah, the, the, I, I'm teaching a course right now, right in the middle of this. In fact, our, our first session uh, was on Zoom days after uh, the university closed down its classrooms. So naturally, the, um, the, the, the analogies, the metaphors of what we're doing in the classroom to what happens in the marketplace generally are, are ever present. In fact, I, I think there can be few industries that are going to be more troubled by this effect than education. Uh, real questions as to what happens in September. Do students come back? Do they stay where they are and come back virtually? Do they say, uh, I'll come back a couple of years from now when I can actually come to a classroom. So, um, so we, we get a really, really concrete, tangible example of what's going on. And, and so issues in our, in our curriculum have, uh, and the guests that we have to join us, um, have focused a lot on those questions. I must say, actually, guests are a treat in, in the virtual world. So people who would hesitate to fly across the country to speak to my students are happy to jump on Zoom for a few, <laughs> a few minutes. So we, we've got a broader community of, of people participating in, in the education of, of, uh, 
of people studying these topics. But um, yes, so so uh, so contract tra tracking has been something we spent a lot of time on. Um, we've looked at at, uh, at at privacy and uh, Zoom became a case study taught on itself uh, for a while until uh, I think Zoom demonstrated a, a, a tremendous openness to, to criticism. So I had a session set up on studying the privacy policy of Zoom, uh, and then and then they took the wind out of my sails by changing the policy <laughs> to become really quite uh, quite attractive. And one of the things that the CEO has done is reached out to critics in academia and elsewhere to say what are we doing wrong and how can we change. So uh, so that adaptation to this new climate has been uh, something that that you know that we we learn in this context and then presumably apply in other contexts. I don't think. No, this may be a little extreme, but to say that, uh, that the way some companies have reacted to the privacy problem in the last month or so could have been a model to companies um, uh, in previous years. The, the famous um, uh, target knows you're, pre you're pregnant uh, uh, study mm -hmm. uh, situation is one we've studied through, through a case study. Um, uh, how one handles the, these these invasions um, or intrusions, or uh, it, we're learning better how to how to do that. Yeah, so, so it's a it's a really it's a really interesting time um, in which in which data emerges much more clearly than it, it ever has uh, as the crucial industrial resource of, of probably the next hundred years. Yeah, and you've seen a lot of conversation now that we are so dependent on uh, the internet for a number of you know vital functions that in the past were maybe luxuries, but but not crucial to our day to day lives. And so there is perhaps as one outcome a new appreciation for some of these services, um, but also a, a deeper evaluation of how they work, you know, what are the business models, um, and and what does that look like going forward. I think that what you said also reminded me of a recent quote from our CEO, Randall Rothenberg, who was asked about our industry as, on the whole and, and whether or not it's kind of on pause right now since you know spending is, is down across the board and, and companies are trying to figure out how to recover from this current economic crisis. Um, and he said, it's the opposite. We're not on pause. We're on fast forward because consumer preferences are changing so quickly, use habits, that it's be, it behooves us as an industry to try to adapt and keep up with, with how the world is changing. Um, so I thought that was a, a good characterization of the time we're in. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. We, there's so many things happening much faster now than they ever did. I've studied home-delivered groceries for, uh, for over 20 years. I, I wrote a case on... Webvan, which probably isn't remembered much these days, but in 2000, Webvan was the colossal uh, dot-com bust that, to some extent, drove a part of that of that economic setback. And ever since then, I've studied other delivery services that have delivered groceries to the home and found, uh, as I would think, almost as a rule, um, that their penetration never exceeds about three to five percent of any of any market they enter. Suddenly, in a month, it's moved a lot closer to 30, 35%. We've seen interesting models such as curbside delivery. We've seen restaurants turning into grocery stores. Um, we've seen changes uh, in habit that I think will, will probably, uh, probably persist. And that, uh, that ability to remember your grocery order uh, as a result of information collected at the individual level 
um, very personal information. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't want to get somebody else's groceries just because they fit your demographic. So um, we're learning there again that uh, that good information in trusted hands uh, makes life uh, a lot smoother. Our guest today has been Professor John Dayton. John, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. Alex, great talking to you. Goodbye.